where you borrow something off a member of the audience, like a watch, and then you have several people out there in the audience and they mix them up in boxes or whatever, and then the spectator has to win their own watch back and somebody else, some beggar, might win it. And because it doesn't happen, the spectator gets their item back. But it's sort of, why would you borrow something off somebody only for them to possibly lose it or have to go through the process of winning it back? It seems like a slightly defunct and dated plot line, really. You're listening to The Mystery Behind Magic. The podcast for ever-learning magicians. Brought to you by Chanad Kish and Robbie Stevens. Welcome to the mystery behind magic. I'm Chinat Kish. And I am Robbie Stevens. In this episode, we talked to Chris Wardle about his book, Creating the Impossible, his methods of creating magic, and also why it's important to make your own magic. Um, so Chris has sent us his book um, uh, that he uh, co-wrote with James Ward. It's called Creating uh, the impossible methods for magic and um we wanted to say that um it's a really good book it sort of gets you in a very creative mindset and um has definitely helped me as well uh thinking of tricks um in a different way how to get started um making your own tricks if you've never done that before so um it will be in the link in the description and we've also put it in our website on the products page um it's on there so yeah, you can get it. It's a really good book and um, we both highly recommend it. So thank you so much, Chris, for sending that to us. No, not at all. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Thank you. Thank you. And um, how did you get into magic? Right. Well, I suppose like an awful lot of people getting a magic set for Christmas as a child. And I was lucky in that growing up in sort of the 80s and 90s, there was an awful lot of magic on TV. I know there's an awful lot now because you can click onto YouTube and see anything and everything. But I think the difference was when I was growing up in the 80s, when there was only four TV channels, it meant that when magic was on TV, it had to be of a very high quality because they only had, you know, four channels. They're all vying for people's attention. And so you had big spectaculars and then the Paul Daniels show and the best of magic. And lot the American specials that were shown over here. So Doug Henning, David Copperfield, uh, watching Wayne Dobson. So it was really high quality magic. I'm not saying there isn't now. There's a huge amount of good quality magic. But because we're quite swamped with it, because of, you know, click onto YouTube and see anyone doing a card trick. I think if someone's going to get into magic, it might be hard now to really see the good stuff because there's so much out there, which is just sort of hobbyists doing bits and pieces. So I was very lucky to see a lot of really strong, high quality, um, you know, high budget magic. And that sort of, you know, when the bug bites, it bites hard. And so by time I was sort of 10, 11, I was already scribbling down my own ideas and uh, the magic bug had well and truly bitten. So when you were 10, 11, who would you say your main magical influences were? All right, well, I suppose the thing that got me interested as well as watching the, the stars, the people doing the magic, like Jeffrey Durham and Wayne Dobson and Paul Daniels, it was really the people in the credits because I was always fascinated by when the end credits rolled, it was these names from the Paul Daniels show. You'd see Barry Murray, Graham Reed, Ali Bongo. And I thought, who are these people, these magic consultants who are devising stuff? 
and I was given when I was with about eight or nine the Ali Bongo Book of Magic by my uncle for Christmas. I remember it vividly. I was given it on Boxing Day to his house and I opened it. And actually, it sounds very antisocial, I have to say, but everyone else was busy playing board games and eating buffet food and everything on Boxing Day. And I just sat and read the book. And I basically spent the whole of the, the evening, but I was just amazed. It was like, wow, I knew there was tricks out there, but this was someone saying, here's how to make things up yourself and here's some methods. And it just really just opened my mind up to how you can create things and the people behind the magic, if you like. So um, almost name your, your program. So I was hooked by that, really. So that, that was influence of thinking, wow, there are these people who are scribbling away in the background with bits of string and double-sided sticky tape and whatever, making these incredible illusions. Is that why you kept your love for magic going? Because you could make things. Yeah, I suppose, because having read Ali Bongo's book, I then did start making up tricks and things. I mean, I was always playing around with my magic set. You know, I'd often, um, when I get a new trick, because I you know, the bug a bit quite early, and there's a lot of stuff out on the market. You could go into a toy shop, and there's a whole Paul Daniels range of tricks and all sorts of things back then. And I would often buy, get the trick and play around with it before reading the instructions, because I'd like to see what else you could do with the prop. Because often you'd get something and find that it had some moving part that you wouldn't expect or it did something. And sometimes I'd come up with something and then read the instructions and think, oh, the actual trick's quite different. So I'd have got to the two tricks for the price of one. It wouldn't necessarily be any better, but it might be something different. And it's very interesting because the only other two people I've ever heard say that, that they play with the trick before reading the instructions, are Luke Osland on your um, previous um, podcast. And I bought a DVD years ago of Paul Daniels being interviewed at the Magic Circle. And he said whenever he was sent a trick by someone, possibly to use on the show, he'd not read the instructions. He'd play with the prop and see what was possible with it. And I was doing that when I was sort of eight or nine. So it's interesting, that sort of common thread. There's probably more people who do it as well. I've only ever heard those other two people say it. So I thought I'm in pretty good company, I like to think, if that's what Paul Daniels did and what Luke Osland does. You know, so um, yeah, it's interesting. Creative people maybe think in similar ways, maybe. So, would you say you're more of a creator or a performer in magic? I'm definitely more of a creator. I mean, I start out, I love performing, it's great, but I don't have very much opportunity to do that because I, I have a day job, I'm a teacher, I'm working full time. And when I'm in term time, my mind is completely 100% focused on teaching, which I really love. Uh, I really enjoy teaching. But in sort of, you know, evenings, weekends, and then I'm very lucky to have the long holidays, I will be busy beavering away, coming up with ideas and then doing odd bits of lecturing shows, whatever. So it's a, quite a nice mix because I really enjoy and love the teaching side. And then I can spend other bits of time doing the magic side. That's quite good for me coming up with ideas because you can drop things down and then you have to leave them for many weeks because you're busy on your job. And then come back to the holidays again I can revisit things and often those little germs of an idea have sort of fermented in your brain and by leaving them a little while you can come up with something even better or stronger or you realize the idea wasn't that good after all so it's quite good to you know be very patient with your methods and ideas and let things grow um, and there's some things you see that have been released are you know sometimes there's so many tricks out there now aren't there you think has that really had enough time to be tested properly or to be thought through fully and um, there's some fantastic stuff out there I hasten to add um, but it's quite good to let your ideas gradually 
awesome, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, if we can talk about a book a little bit, um, one fi- one uh, bit that I found really interesting is um, that you mentioned that you recommend and you go into like hobby craft and um, similar DIY uh, shops and you look around and then, uh, you know, see what ideas you could have with them. How did that come around? How did you find you could do that? Um, interesting question. I'm not sure. I think I've just always done it. I've always had a look for things and thought, oh, that's got magical potential. So as you first start as a kid, as a hobbyist, you're looking to see, oh, where can I buy, you know, tubes from or decks of cards or the right sort of rope for doing cut and restored, especially before you realise just how much there is in the way of magic shops. Because when I was younger, there was no, no internet shopping and things. You had to actually go physically to a magic shop. And if you didn't live near one, then you either had to use mail order and you're not quite sure what you're getting. You can't see what you're getting. Or you would have to look around the local hardware stores and find the right sort of rope for cut and restored or the right sort of playing cards. So I suppose I've always done that. And then I've often then looked in hobby craft and some of the discount stores. And we'll just look at the you know different sort of adhesives, different sorts of packaging and think, has that got magical potential? And I'll often try and get by the cheapest version, then I can cannibalize it, take it to bits, see what it does. And then if I can work out something, I'll then buy the, the top of the range version to turn it into the, the effect. Um, but yeah, I've always enjoyed just looking around. And at the moment, of course, with the current situation, we can't do that, sadly. Um, but I really love browsing around those sorts of shops. And in fact, Angelo Carbone says he does a similar thing. And um, so I'm not alone in, in that thought of hunting around shops. I mean, it's. I think it's definitely a good idea because it, it's um, it's definitely better and puts you in the idea of you know what can you do with this and um, and I think it also helps. Um, in your book, you said um, you try and solve everyday problems, uh, with magic as well. And you know, if they sell it in a shop like that, then it could be, you know, a problem that you could solve with that as well. Um, definitely a great point. And um. Um, how do you how do you create a trick? So, do you what's your preferred way or the way you do it the most? Oh, good question. Um, sometimes I will read uh, a, a trick. I'll, I'll look through other, other books and get out some ideas, and then try and see if I can put two different things together. So that's quite often a method. Quite enjoy that. It's a quite nice way of to let your mind sort of work on an idea is I'll read three tricks you know from three different books and then then go to sleep go to bed and sometimes in the morning you'll wake up and I'll come up with something and it's because your subconscious has sort of played around with it you always have to check of course you haven't just remembered one of the tricks that you've read um, which can happen occasionally you just check um, but often you can sort of you know get take the germ from one thing and the germ from somewhere else so you're not stealing but you're taking a little essence it might be a, a plot line and it might be a certain sort of gimmick or it might be a certain sort of procedure from another trick and put them together and create something new. So I often do it that way. I think you can be inspired to come up with magic by the things you're interested in. I think you have to look wider than magic itself. So things like movies are really good and music and plays, because often you'll see things which are sort of theatrical or magical in inverted commas in, in a show. And it makes you think, oh, wouldn't that be great if you could do X in real life? I wonder how you would do that. Um, and other ways, I like to explore methods. So I'll find a method that I like and think, what else can you do with that same method? 
I know some magicians only focus on like what's the effect and then how am I going to create it? And I tend to probably do more 60-40 of here's a method, what can I get out of it? Um, I'm probably more method based, which probably some people would prefer to be the other way around. But sometimes methods are really unexplored or you suddenly realise you can do a lot more with something than uh, than people have found out in the past. Um, what makes, a, I guess, a good trick when you're thinking about creating one? What are the things that goes into it to make it good? Right, oh, good question again. I think, first of all, you've got to, when you get the final part of the trick, you've got to be able to explain it in you know two or three sentences. If it's something long-winded, it's not going to be a, a great trick. So you've got to think, this is, the, this is the process, this is what's going to happen. So you could actually describe it to someone and say, you know, a couple of sentences. And they know, you know, it's not one of these long procedural type things. And also you want to have a visual element. I think of it, unless it's something purely mental magic and it's just something that you're doing, um, you know, perhaps on, you know, on the radio or whatever. I think really magic is, is at its best when it's got a visual hook. So it's not easy to describe, but you can instantly get the, the idea. So you're going to lose the spectators in the process. And it's got a visual hook. And often for me, I think it's, it's something which is simple. When I first started at Magic, as we all do, you will start, you learn the moves and you do all the practicing, which is really important. It's good to get that grounding of, you know, of, um, you know the card moves is great. But as I've gone on and I've seen other performers and spoken to more experienced performers, often they'll look for the most direct route to do something because you can focus much more on the presentation which is what the audience are buying. That's what they're booking you for and paying you for. And also often, if it is really in a pure, simple method, it's often so much harder for an audience to deconstruct it and work out what's happened. Because if you're doing something that involves lots of moves, they might not know what the moves are, but they might think, oh, well, he did something fishy with his hands at that point. Or they've got some inkling. But if it's something quite, you know, it sort of almost, almost passes them unnoticed, you're, you've got more chance to cover your tracks or combine two simple methods. If you try and combine several complicated methods, you're going to get yourself into, into hot water. So do you Does tend to perform question? your... Sorry, oh, yeah, no, that, that answers it perfectly. Um, do you think that... Yeah, no, do you perform your own original tricks mostly or do you tend to perform other tricks as well? Well, no, I tend to perform my own stuff because I know then if I am, I don't do a huge amount of perform, but when I do perform, I know that I'm not going to clash with anybody. I remember I did a, um, a charity gig with Alan Maskell many years ago now, and I've invited a few other magicians to go and do a charity event at, at Centre Parks in, in Petford, the big Centre Park that opened up there, and this big charity night, and the magicians were all in the room beforehand, all of them go around the tables doing close-up. And they're saying, well, I'm doing Professor's Nightmare. Oh, no, no, I'm doing Professor's Nightmare. Well, I'm doing Sponge Balls. No, I'm doing Sponge Balls. And it was a bit of a trade-off. As you know, well, I, I always do Ambitious Card because I didn't want to be mixing and mingling and doing the same effects. And someone said to me, what are you doing? And I listed off what I was going to do. And they said, oh, we don't do any of that. So I knew I wasn't going to clash with anybody because I was doing my own material. So I've always done my own stuff. And before I publish anything, because I've written quite a bit for magazines, and they've been very nice, people have asked me to contribute. I will always, before I do any publishing, I'll always test it out. So I always do, you know, show that there's a method in my madness, if you like, and do my own material. 
uh, and then you just say you know sure that you know it works and that you're not going to clash with anybody which i think is um you know, it's important because there are you know there's some brilliant tricks so many brilliant tricks out there but when you do talk to close-uppers very often it's it's the same sort of it's on your deck an ambitious card and it's it's the same few things because they are wonderful i hasten to add but there's not necessarily if you've got a team of magicians out table hopping you may not get the variety um, and you don't want people to have to do a trade-off if they're all doing the same material so for those creating the only other thing their I own... do... oh you go so i was just going to say that i do my own stuff really about 90 percent of the time the only thing i do perform which is somebody else's which i perform quite often which i really like is, is a, a wonderful book test by al smith called economicon which i highly recommend it's very clever al is a very clever man he's come up with some lovely magic square variations and all sorts of things but this is a, a book test and i recommend that very much that's the one thing which i do quite often which is not mine but nearly everything else is my own my own stuff yeah so i guess then in relation to that you I, I haven't heard of that before so do you tend to then if it was well known and performed lots would you not perform that book test then yes that's true actually i suppose if i suddenly found people were we're doing it, then I probably would. I mean, it's, it's been around quite a long time. Some of the things it was very big for a while, and then it always with these things, and the next thing comes along. And because it's not the sort of thing you could do, it's not really a table popping effect, it's more a platform effect. And so there you're less likely to clash in a lineup because you're not going to book the same sorts of magicians. Like if you've got an illusionist or a mentalist or a whatever, you can have variety. It's only in probably more close up situations where you might have that. That clash or in a magic competition that's where you get that clash having judged a few uh, been lucky enough to do that a few times and um, having entered a few over the years it's funny when you see oh dear you know six people all doing a different version of legion rings or, or whatever it might be certain things become popular whether it's with barbed wire or plastic rings or coat hangers you suddenly see the same thing um, yep. so yeah in, in close yep. I always do my own stuff so for those creating their own original tricks, how, how do they know if it's original? What's the best way to find it out? Oh, that's a really good question, because that is very hard, because you can only do so much research. So I will jot ideas down and I will play with them. And the things I do is I will look in my magic books. And I've got an awful lot of books over the years. Great to go to if your local club has magic auctions on or you can pick things up. Often you get things on, um, you know, on the internet, you can find collections of books that people don't quite realise what the value of it is, and you can get some good bargains for magic books. I will look through and try and research as much as I can. I will ask other knowledgeable magicians, because it's very embarrassing if you publish something and discover that someone else has done it. And there's nothing that's absolutely 100% original in magic. Everything has got some, some basis in something else. So it'll only ever be your elaboration, your embellishment, your improvement um, or, or alternative on some things. You've got to make sure that it's different enough. I say it's very, unless it's to do with some wholly new piece of tech, it's quite hard to work with something which is absolutely 100% your own. Um, so it's good to talk with friends. That's really useful. Um, I've been very lucky. I've got a, a wide group of friends in magic and I've been lucky to have joined several clubs over the years. And um, Alan Maskell, I mentioned earlier, I've um, worked with him quite a bit. We used to do a, a joint lecture, which we um, resurrect now and again. 
and Alan's extremely knowledgeable. He's currently the British Ring IBM president. And Alan and I did a joint lecture for a number of years and traveled around the country doing that in sort of holiday times and things. And our chaps in the car on the way, we would sort of bat ideas around. And that was a really good way of coming up with tricks, sort of chatting and sort of bouncing ideas around, but also to check, has this been done before? Because Alan's extremely knowledgeable and it's a good way and, and chat with other people as well. You can check, oh, is this actually mine or is this somebody else's? Yeah. Um, you sort of, um, first of all, I want to say um, your book has um, has some really good stuff about making um, your stuff unique as well, what you're already performing. So that's really good as well. And um, you sort of mentioned that you write for quite a few um, magazines and contribute to uh, quite a few magazines. Um, why do you enjoy doing that, I guess? If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Well, I started doing it really by by accident, if you like, and that I was coming up with things. And certainly by the time I got to university, I, I was filling notebooks with ideas and things, really not totally any good because you come up with lots of ideas. And of the ones you come up with, only a fraction actually make it. You have to be very strict with yourself and prune things back and work out what is actually a, a strong enough effect. And also make sure it is, it's, good, it's different enough, if you like, and original enough. Um, but I was writing things up and playing with ideas and thought I really could do with keeping all this together or having it recorded somewhere more formally than scribbles in a book. And I'd, when I left uni and started work, I then joined the Pentacle Club in Cambridge and the members there, I was showing them a couple of things and they said, oh, you should, you should write that up and, and send it into Abra, which at the time was a weekly magic magazine, now long gone, sadly, but it ran for well over 60 years. It was sort of the magic week of its day, I have Magic Week now on the internet, although of course it wasn't just news, it was tricks as well. And so I thought that's a good way of recording the things I'm coming up with, because you, you make something, you do it, then you use it a few times, put it away, and if you don't use it for you know six, nine months, you come back and you think, oh, now hang on, what was the move? What was the, if? because you forget, if there's a card effect, unless you've written it down really carefully. So it was a good way of me keeping track of what I was coming up with, and also just sharing my ideas. And because I published a couple of things, I got some nice comments from other magicians. That sort of spurred me on. I thought, oh, this is a nice thing to do because I'm sharing what I've come up with. And people seem to be liking it and using it. And then off the back of doing Abra, I then got asked to do a, a few other magazines as well. Uh, and that sort of then just, just carried on as, as one thing has sort of either finished or they've turned into another format. Other things have come along. So I've been very lucky to be. Also, I currently have a column in the Magic Circular, the magazine of the Magic Circle. I'm very proud to, to do that. I was very pleased when Will Houston asked me to be involved in that. It was a great honour. And I was asked by Geoffrey Newton to write a column in uh, the Keyring magazine, magazine of the um, IBM British Ring, which I do with James Ward, who is my co-writer on Creating the Impossible. And uh, James is a, a great inventor as well. And so we do that together, sort of to share ideas and show how we come up with things between us. And then I do other bits and pieces as well. I also write for Secrets, which is the Young Magicians magazine. And that's, again, really, really nice to be asked to do that. And then a few other little one-offs here and there as well. So it's nice to share. I mean, people have said to me, Chris, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't publish stuff because you could be selling it or you could be releasing it. Um, but I find it's, it's quite nice to share ideas. And also, I'm not I'm not quite business minded like that. I probably should be more business minded, but I'm not. 
And the other thing is when I have sent things to dealers, sometimes I've had things released and that's been wonderful, it's been great. And other times they've said to me, oh, um, it's, it's good, but it'd be very costly to produce or it's a bit a bit fiddly for us to produce. Why don't you publish it as an article? And yet I publish stuff and people said to me, you should never have published that, you should have marketed it. So maybe I'm quite good at sending the wrong, the trick that I should have published to the dealer and the trick that should be to, to go into the magazine to the, the, other, the other way around, you know what I mean? I'm good at sending my tricks in the wrong direction. <laughs> you learn that over the years. Yeah, no, um, and you sort of mentioned um, James Ward and I think it's a... Uh, um, it's a really nicely written and it's like it, you feel like a conversation um yeah because i was like oh you know two writers i've i've never read a book but, uh, with two writers before but i actually really enjoyed it so yeah it's a great book um in your um in your book um you mentioned why you should create your own um magic and effects uh, for many different reasons why what what would you say is the main reason that you do keep creating effects rather than you know buy some which for a lot of magicians is easier and more convenient oh definitely especially when you're starting out in magic it's good to get a grounding and see what's out there and, and buy some things but but magic is an expensive hobby uh as, as i'm sure you're aware already you know it's it's not a not a cheap hobby and I think the, the main thing to create your own things is that you want to stand out. If you want to be a, a performer or just be entertaining as a magician, it's really nice to show people something that they don't go, oh, I've seen that before, or that they're aware of it. I mean, we all know the classic thing where whenever a magician produces a deck of cards, a lay person will say, oh, I've seen that, even though they've got no idea whether you're going to do a tournament stored card or card on ceiling or you know whatever you could do any any ambitious card whatever routine you want to but lay people do are, are a bit like that aren't they sometimes with, with card tricks so if you can come up and be producing something else or, or approaching it a different way then it makes you stand out and several magicians have, have said this over the years much much more high profile and, and much more experienced magicians than i and so i've tried to take that to heart where people have said you know what you should be doing is looking in books or looking to the past, don't look for the latest new release, the latest miracle. If you want to be different, look at some of the classics and things that have gone on before, and then make it your own. Uh, that's I mean, I know um, people like Jeffrey Durham often will do I mean, some classics, things like the uh, the sand in the water, where you pour sand into a bowl of water, mix it all up, it's all different coloured sand, and then he reaches his hand in and brings it out, and the sand is sorted so the yellow sand for example comes out all yellow and it's dry reaches his hand into the bowl of water again brings out green sand it's all green and it's dry I mean, there's some of those classic tricks which people don't you know they ignore those because it's it's an old trick but actually it's so old it's new and then he puts his own special spin on it so it really makes you stand out if you can do your own thing or just do it an established trick in your own way uh, it might because it's all uh, magic is there the vehicle to sell you you're not really selling the trick. So if you can take tinker the trick and make it yours, then you're going to really connect a lot more with your audience and be selling yourself. So would you say that some of that is creating your own unique story in the trick when you're creating it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's great if you can think of an, an original 
way of getting into the effect or a, a little story or whatever, definitely. I think that's a, as well as coming up with the idea, you might then at the time think, oh, here's a here's a nice plot line I can link to this to make it, um, you know, make it different, definitely. What would you say is the best yeah. way to do that then? Again, things like you know being influenced by things around you and looking at looking beyond magic. If you're going to come up with a, a plot or a different approach, I think it's great to watch magicians. It's great to watch watch moves and things on your watch YouTube and see your magic shows on TV. But it's very easy to then emulate those magicians or those particular plots. So you want to look at you know some movies, look at some old films, uh, listen to music, go to the theatre, chat with friends. You know, reading widely, you know, sometimes a news item, you see something where there's a problem or something's happened, you think, oh, that would make an interesting plot, plot line for an effect. So it's, it's being influenced by the world outside of magic, because I think otherwise you often get caught up in, in the same sorts of plots, because there are certain plots that we as magicians love, and they get sort of brought out over and over again. So you have to try and think of new angles on them. So I think looking beyond magic, to make your magic different, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Um, you, sh you sort of mentioned it uh, quite a while ago now, but obviously um, you're a teacher and you're a magician, you write for loads of magazines, you do loads of things. Um, how do you find time for that? Because I feel like sometimes magicians can make up excuse, or oh, I'm busy or I'm that, but how do you find time to do everything? I think I think I'm quite a most motivated people. When I'm on holiday, I will, you know, if I'm sitting on the beach and it's actually very nice, or out in the countryside, over, I will have a notebook with me. And this is a good thing for for anyone if you're thinking about trying to develop your magic, or thinking of an idea. Have a little notebook by your side, or have your phone by your side, not not on the hazelnut or something, so you can just record, just jot down an idea, because things will come to you when you least expect it. And so when when I'm even when I'm relaxing, I still I am relaxed, but I am still thinking of, of odd ideas or things may pop into your head. So I try and you know log anything like that. Otherwise, you, know, you quickly forget it. And I think I'm also quite disciplined in that sense. The other thing that helps me to get things done is deadlines. Because when you know, oh, I need to write my next magic circular column or whatever, you know that you want to try and make sure that you're keeping ahead. And so, you know, they say necessity is a mother of invention. And I will go through periods of time, I say certainly term time, and I'm not doing any magic at all. And then when I am on holiday, I can really focus on, on the magic. And then that spurs me on. I can look through my notebooks and, and work on things. And it's funny how if you have a deadline, things can often really, inspiration can strike. And then you've got time then to test it out, try it out on people, and then and then write it up. Uh, interesting, I think, I think Luke Oslin said a similar thing in his um, chat with you about when he's suddenly being asked to do something for, for TV and it's got like a couple of days notice. And again, it's sometimes you can really be inspired by the, the deadline because you have to sort of really completely focus on that thing. So I think I'm quite disciplined. And they say, you're true, magicians do sometimes just you know, don't have the, that maybe level of focus or they think it's easy just to click on, on the latest um, download or whatever rather than to think of something themselves, but everybody's different. In terms of taking notes, is there any like particular way that you organise them? 
Not really. I just have a, have a little notebook, a little spiral bound pad, and I just will jot, and I start to jot down any half an idea. So if I if I just come up with something or I something visual or I see an optical illusion or I see something and that's interesting, I will jot down just it could just be a line or a page number in a book or whatever, and I'll then come back to it. And sometimes I will draw it out. Um, I think it's one of Angelo Carbone's recommendations in, in his lecture notes, which has got some lovely tips in there about creating magic. He talks about, you know, closing your eyes and just visualizing it or, or sort of drawing and scribbling. And you sort of, you know, if you think about angles and, and you know, where could I hide something or what angle can you see that the audience can't or whatever. So sometimes I will just sort of sketch and I'm no, no artist by any stretch of the imagination, but by just putting a few lines down or sketching something, you can sometimes see an approach or a way of looking at a prop or at a, an object and think if that's if there's a magical potential there. So sometimes it's jotting down a line, it's sketching. And, you know, not writing out formally, because that will come much later, and then just revisiting again and, let's say, letting the ideas percolate. So don't be don't be afraid to just, you know, jot things down, scribble things down, have a big, thick notebook so you've got plenty of space, and then revisit ideas and see what, what comes out of it. Definitely, yeah. And um, how would you say your sort of top tip um, way of making a magic trick unique is? Oh, that's a very good question. I don't think there's one necessarily one top top way of doing it, but I think say so think you've got to think about you as a performer. What sort of thing can you see yourself doing? Unless you're devising things for somebody else, in which case you're thinking about the sort of things that they would do. So think about the sort of magic that you want to be performing, and then as I say, think about different plots. Um, being well read is really useful. So you know, reading lots. And getting those ideas because you know we're only ever sitting on the or standing on the shoulders of giants. All those great people have come before us who have got those ideas, and you can then just perhaps take them one step further. And think about combining existing tricks into new effects. If you've got a particular favourite type of effect, or you've got a couple of favourite tricks, think: is there a way I could combine those two, or combine the, the plot to make a more flowing routine, and then you can perhaps get something new out of it that way. Does that, does that give you a, I mean, it's a very, a very good question, but a tricky question to answer. I hope that gives you a, a bit of an insight in that. It does, yeah, thank you. How do you read lots and lots then uh, and make the time to, and what, do you, what would you say is the most productive way to read magic books? Do you think you should like skim through them and pick out the bits you want? Or would you say that you should just read it all? Um depends on the book because if it's a book about sort of methods or approach then i would say read the whole thing because you want to get the flow of what the author has intended if this is the process but if it's a book of tricks then definitely just dip into it go into the things that you are interested in so i'll go straight to the sections that are, that are interesting to me i can't remember who it was but some magician once said and absolutely right we always find one good trick in the book because often i if i'm looking on the second hand book and table in the, the Magic Circle library that I will go pick up books. There. I'm terrible for buying magic books. I'll pick them up, things up. I'll have a little flick through, and if something catches my eye, I will buy it, even if it's only that one thing, because I think, well, that might be something I can really develop. So I'd say if it's a book about sort of methods or moves or approaches, read the whole thing. If it's a book of tricks, then dip in and out. 
and you say last thing at night you need to take five minutes read it an idea it's quite a nice way to switch off it's thinking about something different than what's going on in the world or work or whatever and it takes you into a you know that realm of thinking about magic and it's also a good time when sometimes you can be sort of quite creative because you can sleep and dream and and sort of you know let the idea just percolate in your mind and you'll often come up with something or you'll link it later on to something else that you're working on currently or to an existing trick in your repertoire yeah definitely um in your book um i sort of mentioned this earlier as well uh you talk about sort of solving everyday problems and you sort of ne- uh, mentioned it mentioned it now as well um if you how do you sort of get a trick and um i know it's going to be different for every trick but what have you found that um works best to make it um to solve a problem um oh again thinking it's a good tough questions for me this afternoon i have to say um again it depends because it depends on the effect so it's it's asking yourself those what if type questions isn't it sort of thinking well what if i could do whatever or if there's a problem here how could i solve it i suppose one example is I will often look at things like children's effects, children's routines, as in effects which perform for children. I don't mean the tricks that are marketed for children. I mean tricks which um, you know, adult performers perform for children, because a lot of those tricks are quite circular. If you think about their plot lines, often it's, oh, here I've got a new X, whatever it is, and oh dear, it gets dirty or it falls apart or it becomes shredded or something comedic happens to the item. And the magician then has to solve it. How do I get out of this problem? You know, everyday problems make happen to this item. And they use various methods and approaches, usually with comedy elements and different sort of props. And at the end, the item is restored again. And it's sort of thinking, well, can I apply that in a different way? Or perhaps can I break the cycle? Here's that routine which is circular. And quite a lot of routines are very circular. Could I start it at a different points? So it started at the point that, oh, it's broken. Or, oh, I take my pen out of my pocket to use it to sign a card and oh dear the pen's dried up or the pen's not working now in a magical way could i make the pen write again without having to you know in a magical way that just say well here's another pen so you give that to the spectator and they go to write doesn't work and then you you know magic gesture do something whatever and suddenly the pen's working again it's absolutely it's thinking is there a, a way you can solve that problem that sort of circular routine and um, break it, break the routine, start at a different point, or think this is an everyday problem, it could happen, it looks very natural, it's part of what you're doing anyway, you're not, it's not contrived, and you've made hopefully something, I don't know, a moment of magic happen, something unexpected. So would you again, say again, by again, doing that, good it gives a reason for why you're doing it, as well as an emotional hook? And I was wondering, like, what are other ways that you can give it an emotional hook yeah absolutely and you want to make it as naturalistic as possible you don't want to be unless of course you're saying well here is a you know an antique box or here's a a tube that i picked up in a you know junk shop and you're 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 telling a story with an unusual prop otherwise it's good to make it make it sort of naturalistic definitely and make it seem every day and then there's an emotional hook it could be you're talking about either if it's if you want to tell a, a more of a story trick, you could be describing something which has happened to you, especially if you're bringing your own experiences into magic. Like people will sometimes use music, that's very important. 
you think about some of those great illusions that you've probably seen David Copperfield do and, and others, often it's the music in the background, it's the build-up that really draws you in. Um, and there's so music is very useful. And you can also, you know, if it's like a personal a personal item of yours or it belongs to somebody who is special to you, especially if you're really some of the magicians who might tell stories. But it's nice if that's actually real, it's genuine. It might be something that you've actually that's happened to you or that it's yours that you can then use in a magical way. That's a good way of making the audience feel a connection, definitely. You have to try and be, obviously magic is all about illusion and doing things in a, in a false way, if you like, because we're performing parts of, of actors, but you want to be able to have some element of, of truth in there and make sure that you are, you know, genuine, because it's you, you're, you're selling, if you like. It's not the trick. You want to be as authentic as you can within the parameters of being a magician. Yeah, definitely. And... Uh some people are against it and some people like it do you do you like the idea of getting um something from the audience and getting an em emotional attachment from that oh you mean in terms of perhaps borrowing a, a coin or a something ring. or a, a, yeah, a ring yeah. i think for another coin a ring or a you know a piece of jewelry or photograph yeah. or watch or whatever um i haven't really got a strong opinion on that to be honest i think if you're going to then take something and then, you know, it's the old trick of that you borrow the watch of the spectator and you bash it up under a handkerchief and then you restore it. I think that's quite a, a violent thing to do. And it doesn't necessarily enamor you to the audience because they know it's a trick, but it's like, why would you do that? Um, I also think there's, I, I don't like the sort of bank night plot. Do you have the plot? I think, I think that's the thing, that's the right um, uh, title for the effect. It's the one, well, it isn't bank night, I beg your pardon. It's the one where you borrow something off a member of the audience, like a watch, and then you have several people out there in the audience, and they mix them up in boxes or whatever, and then the spectator has to win their own watch back, and somebody else, some beggar, might win it. And because it doesn't happen, the spectator gets their item back. But it's sort of, why would you borrow something off somebody only for them to possibly lose it or have to go through the process of winning it back? It seems like a slightly defunct and, and dated plot line, really. So if ever I'm doing a sort of competition-y type effect where there's a sort of element of a prize, then it's always a prize that I have donated or that I have produced and that it's the, and it's the spectator comes out on top. I don't like those sort of sucker effects where, oh, look, aren't I clever? And you know, here you are, you've got your ring back. I think it should be that you know, you, the spectators are very kindly helping you with something. They're, they're part of the entertainment. You shouldn't be making fun of them in any way or making them feel as though they're just the feed for the trick and that you are using their, their valued item. Um, but if you're just borrowing something off a spectator that might have sentimental value, and then you go and supposedly drop it down a drain or you have to find it inside you know, 14 nested boxes, I think it's, um, I think that's a bit, a bit of a risk. You might not keep your audience on your side. Yeah, definitely. And um, thank you so much, though, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, definitely said some really, really good points to inspire you. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. No, nothing thank at all. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listening.